1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets
1: Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com podcast. Looking at my ECO Go function for the economic calendar. Lots of stuff going on. we got the ISM manufacturing stuff tomorrow, the JOLTS number. Still looking at 10 million uh, job openings. Go figure that. Fed minutes tomorrow. Uh, We got initial claims Thursday. Then, of course, uh, the non farm payrolls. uh, The big uh, labor number comes out uh, Friday. Still looking for 200,000 ads down from 263,000 the week before. So, certainly slowing, but still pretty healthy. But that's a lot of stuff for Ira Jersey's Federal Reserve to kind of digest there. So, Ira Jersey joins us, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, right, what do you think the, the Fed's really looking at these days as they think about their next meeting and their next uh, messaging here for this market?
3: Yeah, so I think the uh, the messaging that you just mentioned, Paul, is probably going to be more important to the direction of Treasury yields than is, um, you know, what they do at the next meeting. Whether they go 25 or 50 at the next meeting probably is less relevant than um, them describing what their reaction will But it'll be 50, them. right? it. it it, the market is pricing fifty. I suspect uh, it it will be fifty, but um, but but there's a non-trivial chance that they they could do less. So, so, for example, when you look at some of those data that are coming out this week, um, you know the Fed will get get the full run of this month's data. Um, the ISM new orders numbers, which we get tomorrow, are that's my favorite indicator for the future path of the economy. Really? Okay. uh, Yeah, it is for a number of reasons. One is that it tends to be the best predictor um, of what the overall business sector is going to do, not necessarily the job sector, but but certainly the the business sector. And we're at the level right now where we're either showing a mid-cycle slowdown like we had in 2013, like we had in 2015 – or where if we go lower we 're going to be near recessionary levels so so I think that that can be a really important indicator if we if it stays at forty seven ish then that 's fine. If it goes below forty five that 's typically recession type levels um, so so, I think that there's going to be some interesting you know fireworks that could come depending on how that data shows, uh, shows tomorrow. And of course, the jobs numbers, right? We'll be watching wages. We'll be uh, right now. Um, the Fed is focused on uh, services wages. And, um, and and that's going to be a, a key focus then for us and for the rest of the market is, do those continue to run at 6% year on year? And if they do, then, you know, that's when a, a 50 basis point is probably, a, I don't want to say assured, but certainly more likely if, if we do to get those kind of numbers.
2: I mean, 25 basis points would be pretty weak sauce. That would be a signal <laughs> that this is no Volker Powell we're watching, right? More of a Bernsian Powell.
3: Well, the way that I look at it, Matt, is is the Fed is trying to get into calibration mode, right? And and because they can go more and they can still do the same amount if they go 50 or 25, they just might have to go an extra 25, kind of at the end, right? So 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 they know at some point over the next six months they want to stop hiking and, and are likely to stop hiking. You just look at the dots. You just uh, you know you hear what Jay Powell and other members of the Fed are saying, and the The Fed is interested in getting toward the end and waiting and seeing if the hikes that they 've already done feed through the economy right We always talk about long and variable lags, so we 're at the point where you know if they if they hike another seventy five or hike another hundred, so maybe fifty twenty five twenty five for example by by may then uh, th- then they 're in a wait and see mode and given that just about every forecaster thinks that the second half of the year we're going to have you know be near recession if not in recession mm-hmm. then you know they can probably say job done in that situation um because recessions typically uh come with uh, significantly lower inflation.
2: Right, but also typically with tighter uh financial constraints, right? And we don't have that. So uh giving us 25 basis point hikes isn't exactly going to get us there. By the way, I was wondering, you know, we were at 9% CPI um what in June last year and if the Fed Gets us closer to two, that would be a drop of seven percentage points in headline CPI. I've scoured the terminal for the last time we saw that happen. Such a huge drop in such a short period of time. And it was from July of 2008 to July of 2009. (laughs) Uh, You don't want to be in that situation, do you? Or, Or do they?
3: Well, I, so, uh, you know, they, they don't necessarily want to be at 2%, but, you know, why do you get to 2%, right? If you get to 2% because oil prices fall to 30 bucks a barrel, then that's a great situation for the Fed, right? Because you have inflation. Inflation expectations would likely be significantly lower, and at the same time, that's kind of a, a tax cut on the consumer, and the consumer would then have more discretionary spending, you know, non-energy discretionary spending to, to help boost the economy. So, so that's a s- scenario where you might actually um, – with lower energy prices where you might actually avoid a recession. Um you know that being said I I think that it that seems pretty unlikely that you get that type of move in in energy prices and and because of that um, you know, a fall to 2% would mean that you'd have to have wages go down or massive margin compression, particularly in the services sector. Um, and that, that's not necessarily public companies, right, because most services are provided by small businesses, not public companies. Um, and, and that means things like proprietor's income, which which we also look at uh, for, for the health of the, the economy overall, would have to would have to shrink massively, and and you know th- that could still mean a recession, right? So you could wind up with a situation where you you do get significantly slower consumer spending, you get uh, prices it, falling in in some sectors, and and keep in mind, prices in the goods sector are already falling. Um, and now, not in every uh, sector, but in many sectors. So with goods prices going down, the question now is how quickly do services prices uh, stop increasing? And, and right. um, you know, it's, hard to, it's hard to know that, and, and that's going to be driven again by, by the wage data that we, we get this Friday.
1: Hey, Ira, is quantitative tightening still a thing? Like if I'm a mortgage-backed security trader or a government bond trader Morgan Stanley, is the Fed calling me up to buy my bonds?
3: <laughs> um, well, they, they are a little bit, but only. Well, not not mortgages for sure. Okay. Uh, for, for Treasuries, they do buy some Treasuries um, on refunding months, so they'll buy some Treasuries in uh, uh, at auction uh, in February because they, they have more um, maturing Treasuries in February than uh, th- than they are, are allowing to run off on the balance sheet. But on mortgages, we're not even close because there's very very few refinancings going on right now. Um, Because mortgage rates are so high compared to the mortgage rates that most people have. So there's significant volatility in that market, in part because there's not a lot of supply, which is a little bit ironic, but it's also the, um, the, the Fed isn't buying everything that's cheap. So um, you're at you're at a point now where you're going to see continued volatility, I think, in mortgage spreads. Um, but the mortgage rate probably has peaked, um, both in terms of spread and, and also in rate. Right. And that's due, in at least in our view, because uh, tre- ten year Treasury yields we think peaked around the, that three uh, three point. Uh, excuse me, four point three percent, and we're not likely to get back up there. Um, so we're we're looking for mortgage rates to kind of stabilize here. But that's still, you know, we, it, there's still a massive sticker shock going on. People aren't used to paying six or six and a half percent. I I always joke because 25 years ago when I got my first mortgage, I had a seven percent mortgage. So for me, it's like okay, this is kind of like you know the high end of the range. Maybe yep. back to
1: square one for Ira Jersey. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Ira, you know when Pele. Came into my consciousness, it was probably in the mid-70s when he came over for the New York Cosmos, Cosmos. but as we think about it, look back on his life, holy cow, he had a Hall of Fame career way before that with all the, the World Cup stuff and his, and his club stuff, but I'm just looking at some live footage here on the Bloomberg video screen of, of Brazil as they continue to mourn Pele, but wow, what a name within the sport.
3: Yeah, he was, and and I have to say, his playing for the Cosmos is the reason why I am so into soccer, because Ah, he came to my little tiny soccer club on Long Island, where I played for, back in 1976 or 77. and did things with the ball that just amazed us and shocked us, and I just fell in love with the sport in part because of what Pele did in front of us. You know, forget the fact that, like, Franz Beckenbauer was also there. I had no idea who he was, but right. Pele had such a big personality, and his uh, his fame transcended the sport, right, where in the 1970s, you know, n- no one could name any professional soccer player in the United States, but they could all name Pele, right? right? So I-, I think that that was just a massive... Uh, He was just a massive figure in the sport and helped grow the sport both here and abroad. um, Created, you know, purveyor of the beautiful game, which which Brazil to this day tries to continue to live up to his legacy.
2: And beloved as well, right? Uh, And without the kind of tarnished, you know, other soccer greats have been involved in taking bribes for putting the World Cup in places it doesn't belong. (laughs) I won't mention any names. Um, or,
3: or, or, or doing drugs, right? So, and, and you know, even at... World well, I was Health, thinking of Beckenbauer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking of Diego Maradona. But, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think, you know, Pele... You know, Pele was a class act, and yep. I think just about everyone who's ever met. So Shep Messing, who um, has been a commentator for the New York Red Bulls for a very long time um, and, and who's uh, who who I know, um, you know, he, he stayed in touch right. with Pele. Pele stayed in touch with Bob Smith, a guy from down here in Central Jersey, yep. um, who is also a professional soccer player. Pele kept in touch with all these guys and was just <laughs> everyone that I've talked to about Pele just says he's yep. such a regular guy, even right, though... Okay. He's super famous.
1: Good stuff. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist. Thanks so much for joining us.
4: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients.
1: Well, the story over the last several weeks has been the reopening of China, the dropping, if you will, of the zero COVID policy and the pace at which China is reopening, taking a lot of people around the world by surprise. What does it mean for the global economy? What does it mean for the people of China? Um, Just a Bloomberg story out here today. China's biggest cities see subway use rebound as COVID peaks. Uh, We want to check in with... All things China. When we want to do that, we check in with Leland Miller. He's the CEO of China Beige Book International. Just extraordinary uh, data analysis on all things China. So, Leland, we've had a, a couple of weeks here where we've had been able to digest, you know, this this reopening of, of China. What do you think are some of the key takeaways here uh, as they continue to reopen pretty aggressively?
5: Yeah, well, I mean, they're certainly just letting it rip. Um, you know, there's there's several different stories, and and they focus on on different parts of this uh, of this so-called you know recovery. Uh, the first is, you know, what happened in Q4, what happened specifically in December, and I think everyone's come around to the idea that December was very, very bad. You know, everyone was talking about reopening, but there wasn't actually a reopening because everybody was hiding, either getting COVID or they were hiding in their rooms trying not to get COVID. So, so nothing good happened in December. Our data are some of the worst, you know, we've seen in in many, many, many years. Uh, then there's a question of what's going to happen later in Q1, and I think people are optimistic that when COVID's passed. Uh, then, then there was going to be a bounce back in the recovery because, in, in, the, in the economy. Uh, so then the question is like, what happens in January, February, and March? You know, how do you time this? And I think that that's really the question markets should be focusing on. There's a lot of focus on COVID peaking in the big cities right now, subway indicators, et cetera. But you're talking about a very small, albeit important part of China. There is plenty of China left to go, uh, left to left the infection to spread. So I think this is going to be a slower. Uh, Economic recovery than people think, you know. Albeit, uh, you know, the economy should be back in 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 Q2.
2: Well, so, but is China really investable? I mean, I know the market has a very short memory, but it was only a few months ago that Jack Ma was nowhere to be seen. Um, You know, if if this is a country that takes company leaders and puts them (laughs) into some sort of isolation, I don't know the details of what happened there, but that wasn't the only thing that we saw. And the most recent incident of China interfering with investor assets um what what do we expect in the future
5: well obviously there's there's plenty of reason to be to be worried about investing in china you know you, you it's, <laughs> there's limited rule of law you know you don't always know what you're investing in. But the the landscape has changed uh, from you know six months ago and twelve months ago. People are looking at these you know incredibly low valuations for Chinese stocks. They're not liking what they're seeing around the rest of the world. There's an emerging market investment story that people want to buy into, and, and there's a COVID recovery story and a pullback of COVID zero recovery story. So everyone went from being very bearish on China, uninvestable, to to being absolutely. You know all in let's let's do this and it's interesting because when you talk to funds investing in china they say we don't really care what happens in the next you know month or even three months or sometimes even six months just as long as stocks go up for us you know by mid-year you know we're going in and we don't care what happens in the meantime
1: leland i know you know i'm just thinking about kind of what we experienced here in the u.s and the west you know as the pandemic initially as the virus initially went through the population and the terrible numbers I guess we have some anecdotal data coming out of China, but we don't really have any good data about hospitalizations, d- death rates, that type of thing. Is there, is there any good guesses you're using?
5: Well, look, there's been model after model that said China was going to hit, you know, a million plus and uh, million plus deaths, and uh, I don't think anything has changed due to the fact that they're that they're getting infected much faster than anyone thought possible. So, you know, it is a black box. We don't know the death rate. We don't know the cases uh, either, although we assume just about everybody's getting covid in the big cities and that will eventually spread to the countryside. So, we don't uh, and it has it's a black box, but I think what it has done is it has made investors a little bit more optimistic oddly because they're seeing low reported deaths or or very little reporting on deaths. But they know everyone's getting infected, so there's this idea, okay, we're, we're just weeks away from COVID peaking in China. That's actually not what the numbers say. Uh, there may be COVID peaks in, in some of the larger cities, but you've got a lot more to spread. So the fact that this is such a black box, I think, is making it hard for investors. But, but, you know, there will be a recovery. It just may not be as quickly as people are assuming.
1: Leland, in terms of the timing here, was this simply a case of President Xi wanting to get through the party Congress, get his, you know— next term before he just pulled the Band-Aid off here?
5: I don't think so, but I'll tell you what. I don't know anybody who knows, who, who can explain what happened other than the fact that, that she just sort of, dead, you know, flipped on something that, that uh, you know, he seemed pretty passionate about for three years. Obviously, the, the economy was near a breaking point. We've been reporting on that for for, for not just months, but years. Uh, you know, the, the the situation with the protests pressured him. But the fact that they had multiple years to prepare for COVID zero coming off, and instead of, you know, waiting after COVID spread season in the winter or preparing with mRNA vaccinations or, or a therapeutics campaign or vaccinating the elderly, they just... Hold it back, and it, 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 it it's very hard to imagine this was well thought out. So huge mystery, but it, it doesn't uh it, it doesn't uh, speak very highly of their uh you know long term strategic prowess.
2: What do you think about the um conflict with Taiwan? Um, how bad could it get in terms of you know military intervention? Because they still are reliant on that economy for chips to run their own, right? Yeah, look, Taiwan is is hovering in the background. I don't think it's a near-term issue, uh, but
5: obviously they're gearing up their military capabilities. The United States is is doing similarly. You know, Taiwan just reinstituted year-long conscription, so this is something that should be. On everyone's mind, but I think that the state of the global economy, the state of China's economy right now, being so weak and 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 in the midst of this COVID wave, I don't think anything is is is, is on the minds of the leadership right now. Uh, but this certainly should be a discussion topic as we go, you know, a year or two in the future, because by the end of this decade, you you do have some pretty pretty nasty. Uh, Pretty nasty challenges coming forward, and and uh, you know people have to be uh, aware of the possibility that this is something that that Beijing is going to want to do before not too long.
1: Leland, did, is, do we have any good data or about the support that Xi still has with his people, given maybe the last few weeks with the the COVID? outbreak
5: you know no we don't there's there's no way of getting uh, attitudes i think yep. anyone who answered that survey negatively would put their life at risk but look I, I think that the reality here is that this has definitely been a ding to the leadership but that doesn't mean that the leadership is 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 fracturing it doesn't mean that xi jinping you know is has has weakened dramatically we just don't know so a lot of it will depend on how fast they can get out of this current covid wave and back to a economy that's actually working uh, and then i think we have to reevaluate in about six months and see where we are there
1: all right, great stuff. Leland Miller, he's the CEO of China Beige Book International. Uh, really one of our go-to voices when we want to get the what's going on on the ground there uh, in China. In our C-suite conversation today, we want to check in with Per Norlim, CEO at no, Evaxion. I'm sorry, Evaxion Biotech. The symbol is EV ax on trades on nasdaq you can punch that into your bloomberg professional service uh take a look at that stock's pretty flat today but they've got some big news well out now yeah but, yeah but it, it was before. up 20
2: percent at the open i
1: know <laughs> crazy stuff so um pair thanks so much for joining us here talk to us about your news in the cancer space today what did you guys disclose
7: yeah thanks so much for calling on the but- what we've done today is uh, just releasing the news that the FDA has accepted, uh, will giving a green light to our uh, clinical trial, our phase two clinical trial for a personalized cancer vaccine. So what
2: exactly is this? There's a lot of different kinds of cancer. I've read on um, your website that it's a melanoma treatment, but explain it to us, you know, obviously not so complicated that we need a doctor to understand, but a little <laughs> bit more in depth.
7: Yeah, well, it's pretty similar to what was in the news about a month ago from Moderna and Merck with their uh, mRNA-based vaccine. So this is a similar vaccine where we essentially make a new product for each patient. So very simply, we take a sample from the patient, we use artificial intelligence to see where the mutations are, and then we create a vaccine that is tailored for just that patient. And all is just to make sure that we get a strong immune response towards that very tumor.
2: So when you say vaccine, I think of something that's preventative. Um, does that mean this won't treat someone who already has metastasized melanoma?
7: Oh yes, uh, and that's uh, it's usually called therapeutic vaccines or indeed uh, personalized cancer immunotherapies. So these are patients at, uh, with advanced metastatic cancer where we can look at the tumors and through artificial intelligence uh, identify the different mutations in that very tumor. And that is the basis for this immunotherapy. Or
2: well, that's incredible news. And um, what does this mean for, you know, maybe patients listening? Um, is there a possibility that anyone's gonna be able to get access to this in the near, in the near future?
7: Well, I definitely think this is the future. Uh, how long it will take, that depends, because it is challenging. We need to make a drug for every patient, but uh, uh, given uh, that it can be done, and we also know today that uh, the effects are better, uh, we already have a phase one trial uh, that has been presenting uh, most of the results where we can show that we have two-thirds of the patients responding to the therapy in the late-stage metastatic melanoma. So that's quite the Uh, very promising results I would say and so from our perspective we are really confident it works and it will provide better results but again you need to to make a drug for each patient so it is more complicated
1: and I I would think it would be extraordinarily difficult to get this to market in scale if every vaccine is personalized for an individual patient how do you in fact distribute it in scale or get it to the patients
7: yeah t- today we have a peptide based platform uh, you know Moderna and Merck they are developing their own in an mRNA based based platform and we have ourselves a new DNA based platform coming up and with these platforms uh, once you have proven that it's effective you can definitely streamline all the processes and make this very quick today we can do it uh, with a peptide based platform in about 2 months we foresee that in a couple of years we would be able to do it with a dna-based platform in maybe two weeks and then bring down the cost tremendously so it can definitely be done it's just uh, we need the engagement of bigger players like formats but uh, as i said Merck is already there and also other formats like rose so they are taking it very seriously now
2: so what does your capital structure look like? Um, we just mentioned your uh, depository receipts um, trading here. EVAX is the ticker. I see a market cap of forty two million dollars, which is fairly small, um, but I guess you're in the position to to exponentially grow that. What does the structure look like, look look like now?
7: Yes, so we are a Danish company coming from a private setting, and then we were listed in New York about two years ago. And uh, uh, at the start, there was a lot of institutions. Uh, They have, uh, over the last year, uh, many of them actually left the company uh, in the uh, quite depressing market that has been here. Uh, We see now that uh, hopefully uh, there is coming more interest back into this field, especially into personalized cancer immunotherapy. But that said, there is still uh, quite a significant uh, part of uh, retail and the Scandinavian retail right. and also uh, smaller U.S. investors.
1: <laughs> All right. Great stuff, uh, per, uh, per Norlin. He's the CEO of Evaxion, uh, the symbol is E-V-A-X. Uh, that was some promising news on some of their drug therapies. So we wanted to check in there because it seems like here with the mRNA uh, vaccine uh, technology and others – the peptid- uh, starting to move pretty quickly here, so we want to always stay on top of that.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country.
1: Let's get to uh, Washington, D.C., because apparently the rumor is Congress is going back to work here. So uh, we want to see what they're going to be up to. I don't know. We'll see. Nathan Dean, senior U.S. policy analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us here. Nathan, all right, the folks down in Congress, they're getting back to work. I think the first order of business is, doesn't the Republican Party have to get a speaker or something? What's the latest on that?
8: That's absolutely right. You know, right now, the, the Republican caucus is actually debating about who's going to be the next Speaker of the House. And it's actually uh, fairly good for those of us who want to watch popcorn and, uh, <laughs> you know, politics intrigue. Right now, Speaker McCarthy is struggling to get those votes. Now, from a market perspective, really, this is just a delay of a few weeks. I mean, eventually, whoever becomes Speaker, you know, we, we anticipate that to be resolved in the next week or so. Uh, but the Republicans need this because they already have like five or seven bills just ready to go on uh, repealing the IRS funds, abortions, immigration, border security. None of these bills are really going to pass, but usually when a, a, a new Congress comes in, whoever's the Speaker of the House needs those few weeks to say, okay, these are our policy goals, and this is how we're going to move forward, and any further intrigue, if you will, is just going to delay that.
2: Um, what are the chances that we see a, a George Santos elected Speaker?
8: <laughs> well, you know, that's actually, it's another issue that obviously that's playing out right now. I mean, the, the Bloomberg News has reported that, you know, he's under investigation and so forth. But what I will say. In though, multiple jurisdictions,
2: in yeah. different countries, on different continents. It, it,
8: exactly. I mean, we, we saw the news out of Brazil that, uh, you know, they, they dusted off an investigation as well. But, you know. Th- because they couldn't was,
2: find him, right? He was a scofflaw. <laughs>
8: Well, you know, it, it just signals, though, that the problem that the Republicans are going to have with the House of Representatives, because they have such a thin majority. And if they were to lose George Santos and there's another runoff, that's just another person that, you know, can make that margin even slimmer. So, you know, as this plays out through 20, you know, 2023 and 2024, I just also remind people is that, you know, you always have like five to seven retirements or deaths or so forth in the house. And so, uh, you know, with such a slim margin, you know, obviously things could
2: change. Dude, I mean, Kevin McCarthy and the speaker bid is nothing on, you know, popcorn drama compared to what's going on with Santos. Is there a possibility that this guy, I mean, the Post, I was reading a story in the Post. So he lied about graduating from college, not just where, but graduating at all. Uh, He lied about working for Goldman Sachs and Citi. Where's the
1: oppo research before we got
2: here? He he lied about, he said he owned 13 properties. He lives with his sister and doesn't own one, but he's thinking about buying one. Um, Maybe more damning is the fact that he may have spent campaign funds on uh, personal travel and rent. Um, And now we find out that Brazil is reopening um, an investigation into him. He apparently stole a checkbook and then uh, went and used the stolen checks to buy stuff, admitting later that he did it, but now he denies it. I mean, can this guy really stay, I mean, even start in office?
8: So, you know, obviously members, are, members in Congress under investigation is not a new thing. I mean, it, it, there's, there's always a member of Congress who's under investigation for something. Um, you know, it will just be interesting to see, though, do the Republicans actually embrace him or do they keep him aside? You know, we saw statements over the weekend saying that, you know, it wouldn't be, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, essentially saying, uh, you know, w- w- resigning is not a bad thing for him. Um, to your earlier point about the opposition research, that is a question that the Democrats are going to be. Asking themselves, why didn't we actually discover this uh, until the reporters did? So, uh, you know, th- this process is going to play out. It's not going to happen fairly soon, I don't think. But even if it does, if he were to just resign in the next week or so, you would have a special election and so forth. But the, the dynamics of Congress wouldn't change.
2: Paul, I'm going to ask a question that may Go. be controversial. Okay. What does this say about people in Long Island <laughs> <laughs> I don't that know. they would elect
1: this guy? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Nathan, I mean, as I think about You know, the the Republicans and and their inability to get a speaker done in a timely basis, does that just highlight that this is a party that really is maybe more divided than maybe we initially thought?
8: No, I mean, look, you, you always you always have, you know, uh, wings of certain parties that are always going to be, you know, challenging the Speaker and challenging leadership to take their position. Uh, you know, we saw this under Speaker Boehner, and we saw this under uh, Speaker Pelosi. So that's always out there. The question is, is that can they come together and unify for an agenda? Because, you know, this is a divided Congress. So the, the Republicans understand that there's not going to be a lot of policy wins here. I mean, th- this is going to be one of those where, where they're going to have to pick their fights you know the leverage points of government funding bills and the debt ceiling and so forth from the market perspective though you know the most concerning thing for us in terms of whether the republicans are unified or not comes to the debt ceiling fortunately that's going to be in september so a lot of things are going to happen between now and then but uh you know we still anticipate that this session may actually be somewhat fruitful for legislation to get across some some legislation not a lot
2: i gotta ask you about something that isn't um, being legislated anymore, but I guess worked out at Treasury, and that is um, the tax credits oh, oh for EVs oh, okay. from the IRA. Probably this is salt. absolutely fascinating because the law, um, as it stands, I mean, most electric vehicles, if not all, are going to be, are, are, will no longer be eligible in a couple of months for this $7,500 tax credit. But I guess it's up to Treasury to decide which vehicles Uh, You know how lax they are um, when they try and adhere to the legislation because a battery has to have 40% of its uh, components coming from a trading ally and we're not even sure what a trading ally is. How are we going to figure this out? You know,
8: and it was funny, I was reading about how, like, the the certain, you know, the, 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 uh, the height of your base of the car determines how sometimes it's an SUV, sometimes it's not, and so forth like that. Yeah, the Tesla
2: Model Y, for example, is 238 pounds too heavy to qualify, or sorry, too light to qualify for the SUV tax credit, so it won't get it and someone suggested on twitter that elon musk just add a 250 pound weight to the trunk that you know drivers can remove after they buy the car
7: But,
8: you know, but this is nothing new. So, I mean, obviously the IRA comes out. It's thousands of pages and so forth. But it's written at the, you know, 100,000-foot view level. And most legislation actually directs the, uh, you know, the executive branch via the regulators or the agencies and so forth to actually put that down at the 10-foot branch. And so as Treasury actually jumps into this, they're going to look at that discrepancies. And discrepancies in Congress is nothing new. This happens all the time. And so, you know, as as Treasury moves forward to actually implement this stuff. If they see certain discrepancies where they think it's just not going to work out or so forth like that, they always have the ability to go back to Congress and saying, hey, fix this. And if Congress doesn't do this, then, you know, they can look within their statute to see, is there any wiggle room that they can issue via the rulemaking process?
1: Nathan, the State of the Union is coming up, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Any preview of what we may hear, what we should be on the lookout for?
8: So the two things that I'm looking for, you know, obviously we're still a month and so away, is geopolitical issues. So essentially Russia and China. How is the president going to take those issues on? What's his vision and so forth? When it comes to domestic policy, it's nice to hear what he says. But, you know, Congress more often than not just says, thank you, Mr. President, but we're going to do whatever we want anyway. The second thing that I'm going to look for into the State of the Union is whether or not he announces that he uses it as a catalyst to run for reelection or not. I'm not sure he will. I think that decision will come outside of the State of the Union, but you know, if he were to decide that I'm not going to run for re-election, he's going to lose a lot of political capital, and that State of the Union may fall flat. So, I, I think that decision will come afterwards, but there's always the chance it could.
1: Alright, good stuff. Nathan Dean coming to us from Washington, D.C. He's all he's knee-deep in all this Congress and policy Do you stuff, know what the
2: best thing for me is about 2023? Go. We're one year closer to getting my salt deduction back is that right when i back, nathan by the way isn't it 2026 is Is he still there isn't it 2026 when we get the salt back
8: (laughs) well you know the trump tax cuts expire in 2025 and so i think uh the debate on bringing the salt back will actually be uh be a lot more uh will take place later this year and early next year and for those of you living in new york and new jersey you know hopefully it works out in the positive side for you
1: See, Matt's smiling. He's hoping. Nathan Dean, Senior U.S. Policy Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks so much for joining us here. Again, I guess I got to get a speaker there for the Republican Party. That's kind of the first order business before they can move anything forward. So uh, apparently that they're still kind of negotiating. I kind of envision backroom deals uh, getting cut here between various factions, kind of like, like the old days here.
9: Let's
1: talk commodities. Let's talk ETFs. Let's talk commodity ETFs. We can do that. Bob Minter, director of ETF investment strategy at Aberdeen, joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Bob, twenty twenty, we're throwing out twenty twenty three. It's it's in the rearview mirror. Uh, twenty twenty three. What are some of the ideas you're thinking about for your clients?
10: Sure. So we look at the the backdrop coming into this year, and we see that the U.S. dollar long positioning still looks pretty crowded. It started to come off at the end of last year, but it still looks crowded. If we start to get a reversal of that, we could see some dollar weakness. That's, generally speaking, really very good for precious metals. Second thing, we have commodity inventories, which are really incredibly low. No one's paying attention to it. Um, the London Metals Exchange just announced 25-year low in the six major metals inventories. Wow.
1: Why? why? Yeah, why is that?
10: <laughs> why? Uh, well, it, it, some of it is because uh, there are uh, labor strikes in South America that have reduced supply. Um, at one point, natural gas was the equivalent of $500 a barrel for oil, an oil equivalent. So, those are costs that go into the manufacture of these very energy intense metals. So, if you can't if you're compete in the global marketplace, you don't make it in Europe, you make it somewhere else.
2: So is that why? I mean, I was looking at gold this morning. Right now it's trading 1830 a troy ounce. And I thought, why is gold on a tear to the upside when, you know, we're still dealing with runaway inflation. The Fed has raised 450 basis points in one year and is going to keep going this year. Um, it just doesn't make much sense. That's right. A- add, add into the add in the fact that inflation is coming down. Right. So it's if it's really a hedge, why buy it now? It, it, it absolutely stood out to us going into the end of the year
10: last year. We said something's the, the market is fundamentally looking at gold differently than it, did, than it did before. At one point last year, $18 trillion of negative-yielding uh, bonds across the world. Now it's, uh, it's about a trillion, just what's left in, J- in Japan. Uh, real yields rose. They came back a little bit, but they rose. At one point, the, the real yield equivalent, would tell you the gold should be $700 an ounce, and here it is at 1800 So something different is going on. What the something different is, is that in the third quarter, official gold purchases from central banks and the like were 400 tons. Now, that is more than double the last, uh, roughly double the, the last, the, the next closest largest purchase in a quarter, right. and it's the largest since uh, they've been keeping records. and so they're the stocking 2000s. up. They're stocking up. Mm-hmm. They're diversifying their reserves away from U.S. dollars.
1: Wow. That's big. That's a big deal. Talk just about China. They're reopening. We've been talking about it for the last few weeks now, and if I'm a co- commodity guy and I'm thinking about my demand model, my supply model, wow, i got to recalibrate now. It's
10: actually a little bit bigger than just than just China. If you think about it, we're, we're we're turning the calendar here. It's been 3 years since we've seen what global demand really looks like. The whole world hasn't right. been open simultaneously for 3 years. We can't predict the next 3 months and now we're trying to to say exactly what yep. demand is going to look I like have been when we waiting haven't for seen someone it. to
2: come on and say that. You know, we continue <laughs> to ask these questions and everybody posits a forecast anyway. <laughs> But it's fair to say there's zero visibility, dude. Like, we're in completely unprecedented, unchartered territory, so we don't know what's going to happen. Correct. Um, It is uh, also a massive economy coming online. So even if um, you have tens of millions of infections a day, you got to figure more people are going to be filling up their cars. More people are going to want to be using – you know, natural resources. Considering the high frequency data we saw, apparently more people are using the subway in China.
10: That's correct. Just very recently, we've started to see an uptick in the mobility data. And, um, you know, it's kind of, the the mobility restrictions, the official mobility restrictions were dropped and then mobility absolutely plummeted because right. it was voluntarily <laughs> restricted. But we're starting to see that bounce back. And again, I, I think, I think it's, we're fundamentally see similar things like what we see in New York, where the easy pass data for bridges and tunnels went right back to pre-pandemic levels and the subways and the, the trains are not anywhere near that.
1: Uh, not well. I'm doing my part. I'm on the trains and subway every day. Yeah, but you're alone. I'm alone. Well, except on the weekends. Then they're packed. You can't it's standing room only because people are coming in to party in the city, but God forbid they come into their offices. Silver, what do I do <laughs> P- with Paul silver? Paul has a
2: work from home axe to grind. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs>
1: what do we what do, what do we do with silver here? We talk a lot about gold, but what you're calling silver? So
10: I, we we like to break it down a little simply. Silver has two main d- demand drivers. One is uh, industrial, right? So that's in all sorts of medical instruments. It's in solar panels, but it's also used by investors in the same way that it would um, be used, uh, like someone would use gold. So we think like of baby gold. So we think of it as half copper and half gold, mm. which isn't the right way to look at it. But in shorthand, that's the way we look at it.
2: It's, it's more uh, industrial, it's used gold. in industrial than gold.
10: Absolutely, yes.
2: And you're not concerned about the market being sort of owned by a couple big players in silver? No. Because I know that for a long time it was a real zero hedge like conspiracy theory thing that some big bank was running the silver market all over the place. I won't say which one. No. (laughs) Palladium, isn't that something that we care about for? Yeah, I mean, vehicles? if you, if you uh, you know, I'm glad, I want everyone else to have a catalytic converter. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? I don't love it for me. You know, <laughs> it really stuffs up the exhaust. I want the engine to be able to breathe. But yes, palladium is used in catalytic converters, and that's a good thing.
10: Absolutely. And it's actually the, the our, our sort of poster child for this environmental trade that we have for metals is that, you're know, you just not, economists scratch their head when they look at palladium because it's had tremendous returns over, tremendous yearly returns over a long period of time. That's not supposed to happen. The price is supposed to go up, supply is supposed to respond, the price is supposed to come down. And that just hasn't happened for a number of reasons. There's no such thing as a pure palladium mine. The rest of the metals that come out of it have to also work and be profitable. But the sheer increase in the Chinese environmental regulations year over year, it was China, it's called China 3, then China 4, then China 4A, China 4B, meant that a, a car in China went from having roughly a gram of palladium in it, in its catalytic converter, to having three grams. You don't care how many cars are getting sold when the, the actual loading of the metal triples, Yeah, and supply just couldn't react. And so it's those sort of environmental regulations that that tell us that an environmental metal can perform well over a long period of time. Right, because supply just,
2: just can't e- exponentially yeah. growing. Bob, you are director of ETF investment strategy. So we're talking a lot about commodities, but I want to get to the ETF part of this because I have a program that's dedicated to ETFs what an incredible year 2022 was for issuance, um, for new ETFs, for thematic ETFs, and even in a year when there were no IPOs and M&A was dead. What does 2023 look like to you? So 2023,
10: for for us, we, we think that that backdrop going into 20, leaving 2022, coming into 2023, really sets us up for some, some nice um, returns in, in a few areas. And uh, one of them is uh, we, we have a, a, an ETF, the ticker is GLTR, it's called Glitter, it's a precious metals basket. These are physically held, they're in a vault. We list the serial numbers of the bars of all of the metals on our website. You can go in, you can see it, there's no roll yield problems, Um, and it is roughly allocated. It is a market, uh, the the allocation fluctuates based on market value, and uh, and it started in 2010, so it's fluctuated away from its original weight, but right now it's about 57% gold, 27% silver, 4% platinum, and 12% uh, palladium. We talked about palladium. Platinum is what you use in a catalytic converter for a diesel-powered boo. Um, yep. Yeah. And <laughs> and uh, we, we talked about gold and silver. And so okay. we think the backdrop that we spoke about is
1: positive for, for, for glitter. For right. glitter. Good GLTR. Stuff. GLTR. Bob Minter, director of ETF Investment Strategy. Thanks so much for joining us here. The firm is Aberdeen. He got his bachelor's in economics from Rutgers. Rutgers men's basketball had a huge win yesterday. They beat number one Purdue. That is a signature win that, come times, comes March. Don't. Uh, that is going to be a big for the uh, committee there when they're picking teams for the big dance. Uh, talking commodities, talking metals, uh, and uh, lots of ways to play it on the precious metals, the base metals, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and there's certainly ETF plays there. <music> All right, 2022, ugly, it's in the rear view, folks, here at Bloomberg Market, so we look forward. And we do that with Gina Martin-Adams today, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. All right, Gina, you know, I could put on my Chief Equity Strategist hat, and if I do that, I say, I've seen peak inflation, I can see the end of rate hikes some point in the next, uh, you know, certainly in the next six months, maybe I feel like, okay, I've got some earnings risk, but that's not too bad, I think I can take some risk here. But people keep coming back to me and saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, the earnings risk is bigger than you think." What's your call there as we start up 2023?
9: Uh so our call is yes, there is some likely downward estimate revision pressure to continue, but looking at past estim- or past recessions for guidance in the upcoming year is probably going to prove uh, a faulty strategy. And what I mean by that is our most most likely sort of behavioral pattern as investors, is to look at past recessions as guidance as to what to expect in the recession that is emerging in the U.S. in 2023. But the reality is all recessions look very different. And the recession in an environment where inflation has peaked, uh, inflation was largely supply-based, and some of the supply constraints are easing going forward, creates a very different profit outlook than your typical recession, and certainly very different than the 2008 recession, where we were in the midst of a financial crisis, which created that really big downdraft in in earnings. So, we do think that we have some downward revision pressure Mm. to come, but the recession ahead is really unlikely to look like any of the past several recessions will be unique in its characteristics. And that should really drive your investment strategy for 2023
2: well michael burry says um it could be the kind of recession that drives us from terrifying inflation back into deflation and and uh, requires not only the fed to cut rates but more fiscal stimulus from the government um what do you think of his tweet he of the big short of course
9: Uh, you know i i'm not michael burry so i can't really speak to his strategy but what i will say is We absolutely are in a period of disinflation. We definitely saw inflation peak in the the summer of last year. I frankly don't think we're going to have a massive deflationary crisis coming in 2023. I do think that the monetary measures have a lot of people quite scared as to the potential financial implications, but offsetting that contraction in money growth, you do have very strong balance sheets on the part of uh, U.S. households to offset some of that pressure, which puts, a, puts us in a very different position than we were in the 2007-2008 period. I think it's only natural for most people to look back and say, okay, well, what were our recent experiences and attribute that as the most likely um, you know, outcome for 2023 I just think, uh, you know, we sit in a very different position. We will see disinflation, certainly. We will see the unemployment rate start to tick a little bit higher. But there are some, you know, unique characteristics of the economy today that didn't exist 15 years ago. Uh, Certainly we've been through the last 15 years to set us up for the next cycle. And so I want to try to account for that when I think about where we're headed.
1: Hey, Gina, I know uh, from reading your work over the years, you and your team, you have scorecards at different sectors you kind of like. What's your scorecard telling you these days as we start 2023?
9: Yeah, so our scorecard last updated at the end of the last earnings season said you want to start to lean into cyclicals, uh, into 2023 cyclicals being financials and industrials popped up toward the top of our scorecard to accompany uh, energy and consumer staples. So it's a little bit of a mix right now. It would suggest to me a tiptoeing into what are likely to be the leaders in the next upcycle in stocks while still hanging on to some of the you know strong defensive plays that work in the current environment, those being uh, energy and consumer staples.
2: What do you think about – I mean, in looking at equities, you have to also um, – I guess, confer with the credit market, and we're seeing some cracks there. Loan loss provisions at banks surged in the last reporting quarter. I think 75% was the amount they were raised, of course, from from fairly low levels. But um, we have $834 billion of leveraged loan issuance in 2022, which is more than double the rate of 2007. And uh, Paul Singer says that the global financial system maybe in contrast to the US consumer is vastly over leveraged. Now, that could also be um, a dramatic statement, but are you seeing these cracks in the the credit side and does it concern you?
9: So what I use for credit when I'm looking at the equity market is actually really simple. It is simply, you know, what does the corporate credit market suggest is the likely outcome for equities. We look at high yield and high grade spreads. As one of our primary indicators of potential distress, distress emerging in the credit markets, those spreads have certainly widened from all-time low levels reached, uh, you know, in the early stages of this recovery process. But they're at about the same levels that we saw during the, you know, many, many recessions in earnings that that emerged in 2018 as well as in 2015, 2016. They're. Not even anywhere close, the 2020 pandemic peaks, nor do they look to be going there anytime soon. They're nowhere close to 2008 uh, crisis peaks either. So I think when you suggest you know, some of these things are moving off of record low levels, that's the correct characterization. We're certainly not in an environment in which credit is easy, um, nor are we in an environment that simply lacks distress at all. But we are moving into some form of a recession in the U.S., and that's reflected in some widening in credit spreads, which, you know, I think is consistent with an environment for a relatively moderate uh, earnings recession persisting in the the S&P 500.
1: Gina, how about small cap stocks? Is it time to look there or with a pending recession, I should wait?
9: Look, I think small caps have priced in a tremendous amount of weakness, Paul. Small caps have been in a bear market for nearly two years now. Um, Small caps are trading at extraordinary discounts by comparison to large cap stocks. So you've priced in a tremendous amount of risk in small caps. Yes, you will have stronger earnings declines in small caps than you do in large caps. Certainly there's uh, much more. Um, likely default risk and, and some degree of earnings distress in small caps, but our work would suggest you've largely priced that in. We even have, a, uh, our work would even suggest that we've priced in the entirety of a Fed balance sheet reduction as well as very, very tight interest rate policy in valuations for small caps. So I would suggest small caps downside is relatively limited. You also don't have the risk of, you know, a bubble still deflating in small caps. This is one of the kind of underappreciated aspects of what's really happened in the large cap index over the course of the last year is, you know, not only are we experiencing some degree of earnings distress, but we've seen, um, you know, a bubble that emerged in large cap tech and tech related stocks really deflate substantially over the last year. That bubble is still in the process of deflating, in our view. That doesn't yep. that doesn't really plague the small cap
1: index. All right, great stuff, as always. Gina Martin-Adams, she's the uh, chief uh, equity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. If you have access to the Bloomberg Terminal, print off her U.S. Market 2023 Outlook report. It has got great stuff, uh, and it gives you good perspective.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast,
1: you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.